This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, so glad you joined this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you're anything like me, I think this episode is going to blow your mind, depending on how much you've been thinking about this area called synthetic biology. And I don't know how I can begin to sort of set context for this interview or the topics discussed, but if if you're brand new to this concept of synthetic biology, don't worry, our guest here today is going to explain it a little bit better for you. But the way I tend to think about it is, you know, for years we have engineered things from furniture to buildings and structures to instruments we play to our luggage. I mean, any inanimate object we've engineered because of the predictability and uh, you could say maybe malleability of the materials that go into it. We knew what was going to happen when we engineered those those products and, and we were confident that they were going to end up the way we wanted to and that they would last. Well, what starts to happen as we learn more about biology in this field that has just exploded lately in biotechnology? A lot of us in agriculture think of just GMOs when we think of biotechnology, but uh, we're going to really widen your worldview of biotechnology today what is possible with this concept of synthetic biology, which is really just simply using engineering principles to build things biologically and the impact that can have both in in every industry here on Earth, but also in space, because our guest here today also spent some time in NASA. So let's go ahead and introduce him. We have on the show John Cumbers. He's the founder of SynBioBeta. SynBioBeta is an innovative network for the synthetic biology industry. They're, they're a trade group. They have an annual conference coming up very soon. So you may want to go ahead and register right away after listening to this episode. It's a First week of October. They also do a weekly wet newsletter and a fantastic podcast that I have become addicted to. In fact, if you stick around to the end, I'm going to give you your recommendation of where you need to start listening to the SynBioBeta. And then once you listen to that, I'm sure you'll listen to all the other episodes. But John Cumbers is passionate about education and on the use and adoption of biological technologies. He's received multiple awards and grants from NASA and the National Academy of Sciences for his work in this field. John's been involved in multiple startups, such as those producing food for space, microbes to extract lunar and Martian resources, and even hoverboards. John's an active investor through the DCVC SynBioBeta Fund and is a synthetic biology syndicate on Angel List. John received his PhD in molecular biology, cell biology, and biochemistry from Brown University, and a Master of Sciences in Bioinformatics from Edinburgh University, as well as an undergrad degree from the University of Hull in computer science with information engineering. So he's been a long time synthetic biology advocate. And before that, his education kind of set him up perfectly for it between computer science, engineering, and bioinformatics and then on to molecular biology. Anyway, I, I, I'm going to stop rambling on here because I love this episode. We're going to start off talking a lot about just synthetic biology in general. And then the last half of the interview, we're going to get more into what this means into space because we're kind of in this interstellar agriculture type series here this fall. So before we bring them on here, I do want to thank our sponsor for this episode. Thank you, Indigo Ag. We didn't get to the moon by accepting that man can't fly. And we sure didn't get the car by settling for the horse. Progress isn't driven by accepting things as they are. 
It's driven by asking questions. At Indigo, we're working with farmers to question the entire agriculture system to reimagine everything from soil to sale. Yeah, we like the big projects. Go to indigoag.com slash questions to find out more. Indigo, from questions we grow. Thanks again to Indigo Ag for sponsoring the Future of Agriculture podcast. And here, without further ado, is my interview with Dr. John Cumbers of SynBioBeta. So synthetic biology was a term that came around in the early 2000s. And there were a couple of papers that were published, one in Nature, a couple in Nature back to back. And what they demonstrated was that you could take a synthetic designed gene circuit and you could boot it up in a cell and you could have it perform a function that you had designed and that function wasn't native to the cell. So the two examples were a toggle switch for turning gene expression on and off and an oscillator for regulating the expression of a particular protein in in an oscillatory fashion, up and down, up and down. And that led with an article that I, I think was titled the uh, synthetic biology has arrived or, or something along those lines and what it really underscores is this idea of engineering principles that are applied to biology and what are engineering principles well if you what is engineering engineering is the process of making something or making something better make it faster better cheaper innovation what is science well science is the process of asking a question and getting to the answer by performing a series of experiments and having a series of hypotheses. So if we focus on biotechnology or genetic engineering or recombinant DNA over the last 40 years of biotechnology, most of what's gone on has been firmly in the category of science rather than in the category of engineering. And I love science. I'm a scientist. I'm also an engineer. There comes a time in in every industry where you can take the scientific principles that have got you to the place that you're at and bring in the engineers and the engineers are going to make it faster, better, cheaper, create platforms, create abstraction within the industry so that to be a synthetic biologist, you don't have to know everything from the gene all the way up to the scaled fermenter. Uh, You can start to specialize in different pieces of it. You can have standards and interoperability amongst various pieces of the industry. And so that's what synthetic biology has been doing over the last 20 years, is to create this passionate movement full of engineers who are coming into biology and trying to make it easier to do what we do, trying to make it easier to engineer biology. It's not to say there wasn't any engineering going on over the last 40 years, but there wasn't a concerted effort to make the process of engineering better. There was a lot of concerted efforts to make individual products like Roundup Ready Corn was one that you mentioned, or insulin that was made from recombinant DNA in E. coli, which is what started Genentech. A lot of these projects have been going on, but they cost millions of dollars to get a drug to market or to get a, a, a product through regulation out into the field. And Synthetic biology says, how can we iterate and improve on the process of engineering biology? So the reason why there's a lot of confusion is because synthetic biology is not actually what you do. It's the way that you do it. Hmm. 
And that's what this community has gathered around is how do we engineer biology? How do we make biology easier to engineer? And so is CRISPR an example of, of a synthetic biotech product or process I, rather? I think it, CRISPR is a great example of a synthetic biology product because it's clearly a tool and it clearly makes biology easier to engineer. It's much faster, it's much better, and it's much cheaper than the gene editing tools that came before it, like talons or zinc fingers. Now, but when the inventors discovered CRISPR, they were scientists working at the bench. They weren't engineers trying to make it easier to do engineer biology. So they didn't come up with CRISPR as a synthetic biology tool. CRISPR came about at the same time that synthetic biology as a as an industry and as a field came about. And so we refer to CRISPR as synthetic biology. Um, some people in the field do, some people don't. But if you buy my definition, uh, then clearly it's a, an amazing tool and it's a synthetic biology tool. And, and can you give us an example, uh, preferably in a food or farming context, if you can, of something that is either possible or theoretically possible now with synthetic biology that maybe wouldn't have been before we started looking at biology in this way? If you look at the work that the companies Pivot Bio and Join and, and Ginkgo Bioworks are doing, they're all working on the production of bacteria that can fix nitrogen from the air, feed it to crops. And I don't think that you could say that this innovation couldn't have happened before synthetic biology but you can definitely look at the tools that these companies are using for automated strain engineering and you can see that they have been sped up and enabled by the tools of synthetic biology dna synthesis dna sequencing crispr gene editing and automated strain engineering and then applying machine learning and automation tools to the automated strain engineering I want to shift gears here just a little bit and talk because it's been, you know, such a hot topic lately. You know, plant-based meats have, have been kind of an interesting thing. It would seem to me that through, you know, synthetic biology, lab-based meats are probably going to render plant-based meats a little less, I, I don't want to say useless, but will probably minimize the impact of plant-based meats. Talk to me about that or what, what are your thoughts on sort of protein alternatives? My thoughts on protein alternatives are that there are people who are vegan who live very fulfilled lives from not eating any animal products or meat. And I don't feel the need to replace animal products with cell-based animal products. I would be actually very happy to be a vegan and or vegetarian and I often try to eat the more sustainable option when I go to a restaurant. So I don't actually, I, I think the transition will be from meat to cell-based meat to plant-based meat. I actually think plant-based meat will be what we will end with rather than cell-based meat taking over from plant-based meat. Interesting. What, what makes you say that? The cost and the complexity of scaling up cell-based agriculture based on mammalian cells when to survive what you actually need is is proteins and and those can come from plant-based cells you have mentioned in in other writings and interviews the word the bioeconomy and i think there is sort of this narrative out here that these 
innovations, especially in things like protein alternatives, involve urban solutions that have typically been solved through through rural production. So, you know, you, you, maybe there's this narrative that right now we have feedlots and row crops, and in the future, we're just going to have lab-grown or plant-based. But I know, I just saw an article you wrote in Forbes today about how rural America could benefit from, call it the bioeconomy or, or a bio belt. Can you explain that a little bit better? Sure. The concept of the bio belt is a series of infrastructure investments across the U.S. in rural agricultural communities. And these rural agricultural communities at the moment are farming and they are producing commodity crops like corn and soy. And the BioBelt initiative would give the farmers the tools and the training and the infrastructure that they need to become biotechnologists. So in particular, the, what we want to see is farmers being able to convert their commodity crops like corn into high value products like the heme protein that's made in the Impossible Burger that makes it taste like meat or a pharmaceutical drug like insulin that could be fed, uh, organism could be fed sugar and it converts it into insulin or a material such as spider silk where you could again take sugar or corn and convert it into a into a fashion product like silk. And what does it take to make something, you know, that vision a reality? What, what what's kind of the first steps to to pursuing that? I would like to see a series of seed grants available from the federal government in the US for biobelt hubs. And these biobelt hubs would be able to get grants for setting up community labs in their communities, which would be like biological maker spaces or libraries where people can go and get hands-on experience and they can go and get training. I'd like to see those centers have entrepreneur training programs so that they can understand how to test the market and how to start a business. And I would like to see scale-up infrastructure put in place in these rural communities so that if you've got a product and a project where you want to scale your new organism that produces a drug or a food protein or a material, you've got the port in terms of getting it from the lab into a small reactor, into a pilot scale reactor, so that it could then feed into the rest of the infrastructure that already exists in a lot of these rural environments for corn ethanol fermentation or for scale up of other products by fermentation. Does the synthetic biology community experience the same blowback, I guess you can call it, or vitriol for, from say like the anti-GMO community? There's certain members of the anti-GMO community who like to, like to you know, stir up hate against synthetic biology. And what I'm seeing is a new generation of rational young people who are trained and understand science and data. And they're looking at the ability for GMOs to do good in the world in terms of the sustainable food production in the case of the Impossible Burger or sustainable agriculture and fertilizer production in the case of Pivot Bio or the production of new things that provide direct benefit to the consumer, such as 
there's a company called Z-Biotics, which has a bacteria that's engineered to produce aldehyde. And aldehyde is one of the products that causes buildup in the body after you drink alcohol, it causes cancer, and it causes hangovers. So it's a probiotic that can quite remarkably reduce, uh, reduce the effect of a hangover the next morning. So once you get these GMOs into people's hands or into their mouths, and they're actually having direct benefit to them, I think that the benefits will outweigh any of the negative sentiments that some people have against GMOs and I think the tide is changing and young people are young people are more in tune to and excited about the future products of biotechnology right assuming we're we are heading into this bioeconomy I, I know I, I think it was you who had a presentation about having a bio strategy and I, I just caught kind of little clips here and there kind of the notion of everybody should have a bio strategy could, could you elaborate on that a little bit more yeah, so this was a book that I wrote a couple of years ago with Carl Schmieder from Messaging Lab in New York. And this phrase, what's your biostrategy? That was the title of the book. And the phrase came from an event that we did with Jason Kelly at Ginkgo Bioworks on the impact that biotechnology, synthetic biology is having on every industry. And we couldn't find an industry that isn't impacted by synthetic biology or isn't going to be from architecture through to horse racing, through to painting. Pick an industry and there's a way that it could be disrupted by synthetic biology. So we wrote the book and we interviewed about 20 CEOs and executives at, at synthetic biology companies. And we asked them about what they thought the future would hold for the next 10 and 30 years, 50 years maybe of biotechnology. And we got some very interesting responses. And then we asked them, which industries do you think are going to be disrupted the most? And we heard from consumer through to pharmaceuticals, through to food, all of these big industries that were going to be disrupted, space travel even. And that's the premise of the book is looking at these disruptive technologies on, on industries that haven't yet been impacted by biotechnology. Yeah. And I, let me tell you where my mind goes and maybe you can help help guide me if my thinking is wrong too. But as, as we're doing this, you know, at first it seems obvious that we, you know, we would engineer things that maybe were art we're already producing via biology, but maybe we find better ways to produce it. But also like even sort of inanimate objects, like I, I used the furniture example earlier, where it's a different way to manufacture, where you're manufacturing using using life, which could have all sorts of impacts, everything from, you know, how much we need to mine certain materials to the ease of, of transporting materials. Like you're looking at, if you could use the resources on the moon, then you don't need to transport things to the moon, but that you could kind of follow that line of thinking to sort of decentralized manufacturing here on the earth as well. Am I way out in left field here? Absolutely, you can do. Yeah, and there's this concept that Rob Carlson and I have, have riffed on a little bit called distributed biological manufacturing. Right, and yeah. It ties totally into the BioBelt idea, and it ties also totally into something that Mary Maxson at Lawrence Berkeley Lab has been working on or, or thinking about, which are these ideas of mobile biorefineries and having them travel around the, the, the U.S. to They can move to the feedstock. In particular, one idea was the feedstock being when you've got a fire break that you're clearing out, you can have the feedstock go into a mobile fermenter by refinery so that you can convert that brush that you've cleared out from the wildfire into something more useful. Hmm. It is fascinating. And you, you said something that really caught my attention earlier. You, you, I know you've studied extremophiles in the past, which are organisms that can live under extreme circumstances, like I imagine like temperature and, and that sort of thing. And you mentioned kind of the, the possibility of, of 
utilizing these extremophiles for food. Can you talk more about that? Yes, I worked at NASA on a number of projects for the production of food in space, in particular focusing on cyanobacteria that's been used for the production of food, spirulina and chlorella. There was actually chlorella on the, uh, on the Russian space station Mir in the 60s or 70s. The organism that I was working on was called Crococcidiopsis, and it's an extremophile, so it can live in extreme environments, both in deserts, cold deserts and hot deserts and saline environments and freshwater environments. And we looked at a number of projects where we could use photosynthesis or electrosynthesis or systems where there was nuclear power for the production of photosynthesis and for the production of food. So the nuclear power would go to to, uh, LEDs and LEDs would go to the organisms. And we also looked at, we did a published a paper on ISIU, which is in situ resource utilization. And it's this idea that you can get the food products from the things that you are taking with you into space as a man, as a manufacturing aid for the resources that you find. So as an example, if you go to the moon and you melt lunar ice, there's actually a lot of carbon, but not a lot, 0.04% by mass carbon molecules on the moon in lunar ice. And but, but there's water, there's CO2, there's CO, there's ethanol, there's methanol, a lot of different carbon sources. And there are actually all of the nutrients that you would need, all of the elements that you would need for the production of food can be found either in the lunar regolith or in the lunar ice. And we demonstrated that with this paper and we kind of calculated out a food production system for, for astronauts and what they need to survive. And that the idea there would be to use synthetic biology to to be able to sort of synthesize those elements into food if if someone wanted to stay on the moon for a longer period of time. Exactly. And this was using natural biology, so cl- just chlorella and, and spirulina strains. But it was a proof of principle, which is that if you've got natural biology producing something on the moon, you could then have synthetic biology that would be upgrading the DNA in that organism for the organism to then be producing something different. So you might be able to send a synthesize a different bacterium and instead of it producing food, it could produce a drug, for example. What's the what's the soil like on the moon? Or or can we call it soil? The scientific name is regolith. And because soil has to have some carbon organic component to it. And so the lunar soil doesn't have any carbon. So we call it regolith instead of soil. And I didn't really study the lunar soil too much because I was focused on the lunar ice, which we knew had water in it and CO2 in it. But I believe the majority of the lunar regolith is made from silica. Well, I, I had to delete one of my questions last night because I watched a video in which you answered my question. But for the sake of everybody listening, you know, the question was going to be, you know, why is it not feasible that we could just improve the technology to transport what we need up to space if there were people up there, you know, dwelling? And I believe your quote was that it, it costs something like $100,000 per pound of mass to, to transport, say, to the moon. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think it might have been a kilogram, $100,000 a kilogram to, to get anything to the surface of the moon. That was probably a couple of years ago, but we haven't had anything on the surface of the moon. So that's a good, that's a good estimate, I think. Hmm. 
talk to us just briefly about Mars. I know we focused on the moon and then a little bit on sort of the asteroid mining, but what are you, what's your opinion on the future of life on Mars? I think there's probably already life on Mars, is, is my thinking. I think there's probably microbial life there. And I think it would be great to go and find it and see if, see if there is life and sequence it, understand where it came from. It probably came from either from the Earth or, or the microbes on Mars went to the Earth. And then I think we should, I hope that they're pretty similar and haven't evolved too much so that we can put the question, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't tell us where life evolved, assuming that it is there, but it will, I, I'd like to get on then with settling the planet once we've ascertained that, yes, there's some life there and, and this is what it looks like. What, what do you tell critics of, of kind of space exploration that say, you know, we've got plenty of problems here on, on Earth to deal with and, and we shouldn't be wasting a bunch of resources on, on space? Oh, I have a very simple response to that, which is tell me by which metrics you will measure success here on Earth that we can then decide now is the time to go into space. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the notion there is that when we're problemless, we'll go into space, which is going to be never. Exactly. <laughs> it's like pick, pick your pick your time to leave the, you know, pick your time to to leave the cradle. But also thinking about the what what's the what's the alternative, which is that we stay here for another hundred thousand million years, and we know that every hundred million years something big hits the Earth and wipes out. A big portion of the life here. So I would answer, tell me when we can go and then tell me why you're so confident that we've got enough time to stay here as a race. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very valid point. I don't, I can't think of a good answer to that. I'm trying to put myself in their <laughs> shoes because I just get excited about this stuff, but um, right. that's, that's a very, very fair point. Wow. Such interesting stuff. It, it's blowing my mind and I, I can't wait to dive more into this. I think I did say, and I'm running out of time here, so I want to get back to it. I think I did say at the top show, we'd get back to beta space. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So beta space is a event and a community that's bringing together the space settlement industry, food, water, waste, materials, habitat, all of the people who want to see their earth-based technologies for these, tech, for these industries thrive, but also see them on the moon and Mars. And we kicked off with a big event in the Mojave Desert on April the 12th of this year. We were on the front page of the LA Times the next week with the event. We had SpaceX and NASA and Virgin Galactic and the spaceship company and a bunch of aerospace companies, a bunch of synthetic biologists. And we've got the next one coming up May the 1st, 2020. The location is yet to be announced, but you can sign up on our website if you're interested in joining us. And we're going to keep running beta space every year for the next 10 years until we get to May the 4th, 2030. And at that point, the conference is going to be held at the Shackleton Crater Conference Center on the South Pole of the Moon. Oh, <laughs> okay. Mark your calendars, May 4th, 2030. You heard it here first. I love it. I love it. Well, one last question, because I have a whole bunch more, but I'm, I am good. Tim, Tim, just for your audience's sake, they should get their tickets for the 2030 event soon because the early bird will end in 2025. 
Okay. <laughs> You're running out of time. And we probably all have to save or, or sell off some limbs probably to, to pay for that sort of admission. Details, details. <laughs> oh, as you, you know, like anything that has the buzz that synthetic biology does around it, you know, you might even say hype at times. Are there any things you're hearing out there that you think is maybe beyond the scope of what synthetic biology is capable of or, you know, things that you think are are pretty far-fetched? I think, Tim, you're asking the wrong person here. Mm. I don't think that I, that I hype. I, I try to let the industry speak for itself and I try to let the companies speak for themselves. So I don't think I get out in front of them at all. But I am a big ideas kind of guy. Are there any ideas that, that I think are too far out there and are never going to work? I, I really don't. I haven't heard any. And again, I'm, I'm probably, I'm the one suggesting the crazy ideas. So it's not surprising that I haven't <laughs> heard any. Somebody asked me when I first moved to Silicon Valley, it was the Mendel's Pod podcast, Terrell Timpson. And Terrell asked me on a scale of one to 10, how crazy do you think your ideas are? And this is when I was talking about terraforming asteroids and uh, things in space. And I was at NASA at the time. And he said, that's right. And I said, well, I'd only lived in Silicon Valley for a couple of years at the time. And I said, well, before I moved to Silicon Valley, I would have put me at a nine out of 10. And since I moved here, I would put me at a five or six out of 10. <laughs> and so I think that's just a product of the, of the innovative nature of the Bay Area. But that said, we're all in this field and we're all amazingly excited about what the future holds for synthetic biology. And we all believe that the, the best is yet to come and that we're not even, even close to being able to engineer biology to the precision that we want to or believe that we can do. And so that's why I really, I, I think the world is our oyster and there's going to be so many incredible things coming from this technology over the next 50 to 100 years. If you look at what nature can do, if you look at a squid changing its colors when it lands on something different, or a beetle that can grow from a grub into a, into a stag beetle with a giant horn that it can fight with, and then it can take off and fly and land. Look at a gecko that can use suction cups to climb up a completely vertical glass wall if you look at the circadian rhythm that a turtle has that it knows when it hatches it's got to find its way through the sand and because of the full moon and out to the ocean if you look at a hummingbird that can fly around like a tiny drone if you look at a golden plover a bird that can fly 3,000 miles from north america to south america without stopping to eat or drink biology has infinite possibilities so i i really if we get this right and we can engineer biology, I don't think there's anything that we can't do. Fantastic. Well, make sure you go check out SynBioBeta, the event that's happening in October, as well as John's podcast, which is just the SynBioBeta podcast, right? That's right. Yeah. Check out both of those. This is fascinating stuff. And I don't know, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm sharing a secret with the audience right now because this stuff is just so interesting to me. And I think I could see where the, the widespread implications are, are really going to be significant, not only for agriculture, but for, like you said, for every industry. But I can't thank you enough, John, for taking the time to be on the show today. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for spreading the word. 
Thanks one more time to Dr. John Cumbers for being on the show. I really enjoyed that. I highly encourage you to go pick out his book, What's Your Bio Strategy? I just picked it up myself. I haven't read it yet, but if you'd like to read it along with me, please do and, and let me know either via email, tim at agrad.com or on Twitter at Tim Hammerich. And hey, is reading books together something that you'd like to do? And if so, let me know that too. I'm thinking about maybe for 2020, some sort of informal future of agriculture book club where we could dive into some of these books that have been making their way to the show. Hey, I said at the top of the show that if you stuck around, I'd tell you where to start with the SynBioBeta podcast. Of course, download all the episodes. You're going to want to listen to them. But one recently that just really opened my eyes is called The Mycelium Revolution, How a Mushroom Can Make Food, Plastic, and More. Check that out. You're going to love it. You're going to become a fan of his podcast. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. It really means a lot that you care so much about the future of agriculture to listen to this show. We'll be back next week with another exciting Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.